I've told you before about Dr. Fred Epstein, who's a pediatric neurosurgeon. He worked at Beth Israel Hospital in New York City. He died about nine years ago now. He wrote a book entitled, If I Get to Five. And it was in this book that he recounted the stories of some of these young children that he operated on who, who really had an impact on his life. One of the children that he talked about was a girl named Laura. Laura was 12 years old. She was a very bright, articulate young lady, and she started having severe headaches. She came to see Fred, and they ran an MRI, and what they found was that she had a brain tumor. Fred went in and operated. They removed the tumor. She went through chemo and radiation, and they hoped for the best. Everything went fine for more than a year, and then the headaches started to come back. She came back to see Fred. The tumor was back. They would operate again. There was another round of chemo. There was another round of radiation. And again, they just prayed. This time it would work. Things went well for a couple of years this time. And then when she was 15, the headaches came back. She came in to see Fred again. They did another MRI. And now they found that the tumor was bigger than ever before and was growing at twice the speed. And Fred knew that the options really they had were pretty limited. He came out to sit down and talk with the family. And, you know, Laura was this neat girl. The family had never sheltered her. She knew exactly what was going on, what was the prognosis, what was happening. She got to be a part of all the decision-making. And so he explained to them, it has come back. It is very fast-growing. We are running out of options. We can operate again, another round of chemo and another round of radiation. And I think it would buy you about 9 to 12 months. Laura said, I'd like to see it for myself, please. So Laura and Fred walked back into the back room. He flipped on the light box, and there she could look at these pictures of her brain. Finally, she said, you know, I'm sick and tired of waking up in an operating room, bandages on my head, then doing chemo and radiation, my hair falling out in clumps and being so sick. What if? What if I let you operate and we took out the tumor but we didn't do any radiation or chemo? Do you think it would buy me the summer? He said, I can't guarantee it, but I think so. She reached up and flipped off the light box and said, all right then, let's do it. She walked to the door and turned around and said, surgery, but no chemo. It was May. They did the surgery. They took out the tumor. She healed quickly, and in June, she went off to summer camp. She had told Fred, there are things that I want to do, some things that I've never done before, these things I want to do for the first time. It was about June or July. Fred got a letter from her. She was doing well, and she said, I have a beautiful Palomino horse that I'm taking care of. I love the horse. We're having such a wonderful time. I can't tell you how good it is. In August, he received another letter, and this time a picture. And the picture showed her holding a blue ribbon and her arm around a Palomino horse saying, I did it. I did show jumping and won first place the blue ribbon. It's what I'd never done before. It's the thing I wanted to do. In September, she came back. 
Summer camp was over. She came for a checkup. And she got Fred off by himself in a back room and said, I just want to thank you for keeping your end of the bargain. The summer was great. I loved going on horseback rides with my friends at sunset. I loved sleeping around a campfire. I have loved getting up early in the morning and just taking my horse for a walk, just the two of us. It's really been wonderful. And I just wanted to say thank you. She turned to walk towards the door and then she stopped and said, by the way, the headaches are back. Laura would die in October. But I want to write, read you what she wrote. Calculating the value of a life and days and years is a fool's arithmetic. The only true measure of our lives is how richly we spend our allotted time and how much of ourselves we share along the way. You can't determine the success of a life by how long it has lived. You determine the success of a life by how richly we live. Do we live fully? Do we share ourselves? I've got to tell you, I've been spending a little time down in our columbarium. It's a beautiful place. I go down there not just to do funerals. I go down there sometimes just to sit and have my devotional life. I will sit there and look around at all the different plaques and think of the people that I've loved in this church, people who've been my friends who have entered the kingdom of heaven. But recently I went out there because it was January. And it was 20 years ago this January that my good friend Scott DeBerry died. Scott and I did so many things together. We built airplanes, we flew, we sailed. He went on a trip to Russia with St. Luke's, he and his son. He was 34 years old, father of two small children. He died in a plane crash 20 years ago. I sat there in the columbarium and I, I looked at where I was going to be buried one day. And when I would sit there, I can tell you that what happens is you, I found myself being reminded, seize the day. Do something for the first time. But I found myself being grateful. Grateful for life now. Grateful for life eternal. Now I found as I sit there and I think, it kind of helps, it helps you remember. It helps you remember who you are. Where you've come from. Where are you going? Because that's easy to forget. And yet if you and I are going to live well, you need to remember. I think that's what our scripture lesson really is about this morning. Jesus is creating a meal for us to remember who we are. Jesus was gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, the Passover, you remember, goes all the way back to the people of Israel when they were in captivity in Egypt. And when they were in Egypt, they wanted to get free, and God sent the ten plagues because the Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And the last plague was the angel of death. The firstborn of everyone in Egypt was going to die, except the people of Israel were told, kill a lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost. And tonight when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your homes 
and you will be spared. And when the angel of death came, the Pharaoh finally said, get out of here. And the people of Israel packed up ever so quickly and they ran towards the Red Sea. They moved through the waters and into the wilderness. They had moved out of bondage. They were free and they were now God's people. It's called the Passover. Your Jewish brothers and sisters will be selling the Passover on April the 3rd this year. Our Good Friday night. It is a celebration that's been going on for more than 3,000 years. Such an important night to remember how God got His people free. That's what Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate. This Seder meal. The remembrance of the Passover. But on that night, as He began to celebrate the meal, He took this unleavened bread, bread they'd had to take quickly in Egypt, and He broke it. And instead of saying what they thought He would say, He said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper he took the cup. We believe it was the Elijah cup of wine. And again, instead of saying what they thought he would say, he said, this is my blood of a new covenant that is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you shall drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was creating a meal, an experience, so that we would remember. Remember who we are, where we have come from, where we are going. How is it we relate to God and to one another? It was a time to be able to remember. Because when you remember that, it changes what lies within. This morning, we're going to start a new sermon series for the season of Lent. And it's going to be entitled, What Lies Within. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, What lies behind us and what lies before us are small matters compared to what lies within us. What lies within you? It was Tolstoy who said, Happiness does not depend on outward things, but on the way we see them. So often we cannot change the outward things. How do you see them? What lies within? For last week I was telling you about Paul Williams, the composer and uh, the singer, actor. He wrote his book, Gratitude and Trust. And I liked what he said in there. He said, if something needs to change, it's probably me. It's the one thing we can change. Quite often we can't change what's going on out there but I can change me. I can work on how I look at life. I can work on what lies within. That's what the season of Lent is about. Lent is the season of self-reflection, introspection. It's when you and I are supposed to be looking at ourselves, our lives, how are we living, what are our values, what are we living out, what are we thinking. So throughout this season of Lent, we're going to think about that each week. We're going to be looking inward, the very things that we can control. Because as we focus on what we can control, what lies within, it will determine how well we embrace life and live fully with whatever time that we have. It's important that we remember our relationship to God. How do we do that? I I was thinking about Herman Walk. 
Herman Walk is an incredible man. He, great author. He's 99 years old now. He's written so many different novels. But Herman Walk is Jewish, and, and he is a man of great faith. And I've loved reading a number of his books, but in, in one of them, Herman Walk said, one of the fundamental questions every person must ask, do you believe in the unseen creator of the universe who wants to move and be involved in human affairs and express his love? Do you believe in the unseen creator of the universe who wants to move and be involved in human affairs and express his love? If you believe, then remember. Take the time to remember who you are, where you've come from, where are you going? It'll affect what lies within. Three things I want us to think about this morning. First of all, as we begin this season of Lent, you and I need to take time to remember that Christ died for you and for the person sitting next to you and for us all. We sometimes forget the divine spark that is in all people. God's love is for all of His children. Rachel Remen, she's 77 years old now. What a special lady. She tells her wonderful story about how her mom grew up the daughter of an Orthodox rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. And they grew up in Russia. And she's going to say they were a very religious family, but they begin to sense the persecution of the Jews in the 20s and 30s and her grandfather decided to immigrate to the United States. There was Rachel's mom, and then there were four boys, four sons, five children in all. They came to New York, they lived here in New York, and they all grew up. The four boys all married good Catholic girls. And they all raised their children Catholic. Rachel grew up, and she was Jewish. She went to medical school, and she became a physician. But about the time she was graduating medical school, one of her cousins, well, he had decided to become a Catholic priest. And he invited Rachel and her mom to come to his ordination service. And so they went. And she said, this was high mass in Latin, two hours. At some point, every man would lie prostrate flat on, prostrate flat on the floor in front of the cross. And she said, I kept looking over my mother and thinking, I know that you have been persecuted because of your faith. How is she dealing with all this? Said, we got through and we were starting to head down the street. And as we were walking down the street, I looked over and said, Mom, how'd you feel about tonight? She was quiet for a little while. And then she said, you know, in a world like today, with all the hatred and prejudice and the things that are going on, I think it is wonderful that there are young men who will still commit their total life to God and serving other people. That's what you've done, Rachel. By becoming a doctor, you've committed your life to God and serving people and healing people. You know, Rachel, I think it's in our blood. That's who we are as a family, to love God and to want to bless people. Rachel said we walked on a little further, and then finally her mom stopped and looked at her and said, You know, I believe your grandfather would be proud 
to live in a world that is so divided and polarized and yet to be able to see the divine spark in all? Do you love God? Do you want to bless life? You know, you and I live in a very polarized world right now. We seem to be changing our standards of what is, what is acceptable conduct in politics, the way we speak about one another. When you look at the way we seem to feel about each other as Jews, Christians, Muslims, the way we're so divided on political or social issues, abortion or gay marriage, we all have opinions about what we believe, but sometimes we become so angry for anyone who might think different or act different or believe different. And it's so easy to let anger build into prejudice and build into hate. I think we see so much of it in our world today. And as I was thinking about this, all I could think about was the Apostle John writing his first letter. And to the early church, John would say, Whoever says they love God but hates their neighbor is a liar. For if you cannot love your neighbor whom you've seen, how can you love God whom you've never seen? The whole purpose of John's letter is to say to the early church, you've got to figure out how to love one another, to see the divine spark in others. For only if you love can you know God. And that's what we said we're going to try to do in the season of Lent. To remember how much we love God and how much God loves us. As Christians, as people of faith, you and I need to remember Christ died for me and for the person sitting next to me and for all. Only if we are choosing to fill our hearts with love are we going to renew, remember our relationship with our Creator. Secondly, in the season of Lent, you need to take time to remember the grace moments of your life. When I was reading through Paul Williams' book, I love the way he said it, I think you need to go on a miracle hunt. I like that. You need to go on a miracle hunt. And by miracle, we don't mean it's one of those things you can't explain where water changes into wine. No, those kind of miracles where God moves in your life. Those miracles where a person shows up you could not have planned. Those times when an opportunity comes you could never have dreamed. When you find comfort in your deepest moment of grief. Or you find strength and hope to hang on in a hard time. Do you ever have those moments when you look back and think, Wow, God was moving in my life. A grace moment. You need to take time to think for those things. I know many of you, if you're at the right age, will remember Emmett Kelly. For those of you who are a little younger, you might not remember Emmett Kelly. Emmett Kelly was known as the sad clown, Weary Willie. He truly is probably the most famous clown who has ever been, Emmett Kelly. It was back in the 1930s that he created a clown that was not a happy clown. He wasn't the clown who was making fun at Barnum and Bailey's Circus. And, no, he was the sad clown. He never smiled. He created the character in the midst of the Depression when we had so many people who were homeless, looking for jobs. People were sweeping the streets, anything they could do to get a job. 
And so there was a sense of sadness in our country and the Depression, and he created Weary Willie, the clown that never smiled. It became the persona, and if he was in makeup and character, you never saw him smile. You might remember he's the one who'd be in the circus, and they'd put a spotlight there, and they'd see light in the circus arena, and he'd go over and try to sweep up the light, and they'd be moving the spotlight around, and he'd be playing with the light. It's what he was known for. Did it for 20 years, Barnum and Bailey. But after that, he went to work for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he became kind of their mascot. Then he was in Cecil B. DeMille's, the greatest show on earth in that big show, and he was on TV. He was literally known around the world. But there was one time, one time, he was in costume, he was in character, he was being interviewed, and while he was being interviewed, he got a phone call, and it was the doctor calling to say that his daughter, Stacia, had been born. You see, he'd gotten married later in life, he was in his early 50s, and when he got married, now he had a child, a little baby girl, and he's in the midst of this interview, and he hears the call that he has a baby girl, and he breaks into this big smile, click, got him. The picture was literally gone around the world because he was so famous. Everybody wanted to see Weary Willie smile. One time in all of his career, they caught him smiling. His daughter, Stacia, tells the story of how years later, she was an adult. She was living in Denver. And one night, her father called, and he was just so animated, talking about that day, talking about that day when they caught him. And it was all because he had heard she was born. He was talking about how he loved her and how special that moment was. She said it was out of character for him to be so animated, but she loved the conversation. The next morning, Emmett Kelly was 80 years old and walked out the front yard. And he had a heart attack and he died. Stacia was devastated. She immediately hopped on a plane in Denver to go to Florida where her father had been living. She got on the plane and sat down and opened the morning newspaper, and there was the picture right on the front page. Emmett Kelly, Weary Willie, dies at the age of 80. He had his frown on, the typical look on his face. But she reached into her little bag and pulled out another paper she always carried with her, and it was the picture that had been put on the front page of the newspaper when they caught him smiling. And she opened that up and sat there and looked at the time that he had smiled. Why? because she had been born. And as she started looking at that picture, she just started to weep. She just started to sob. And the man was sitting right next to her, leaned over and said, Ma'am, are you okay? Can I help you? No, no, I'm sorry. It's just my father died. I'm so sorry. My father was Emmett Kelly. She pointed towards the picture of him smiling. And this man just sat back and looked at her and said, Emmett Kelly was your father? Yes. I was there when your father heard the news that you had been born. I'm the one who took the picture. His name was Frank Beatty. You? Yes, I was there. I took the picture. I can't tell you how excited he was to hear that you were born. And Stacia said, in that moment, I had this incredible sense of peace come over me as I suddenly thought, yes, 
You were there when I was born and he smiled and I know my father is smiling down on me now. It's okay. Do you have those moments? When you could never orchestrate it but someone is there? The peace, the hope, grace comes? You know, last week we handed out a journal. And what I ask you to do is I said, I want you to take some time each day. Each day during these 40 days of Lent, what if we as a family of faith took time to remember? I said there's going to be opportunities in your bulletin. And in your bulletin, you'll find on one of the foldouts, there's three questions. We ask you each day, remember, what are you grateful for today? The second question we said would always be, did you learn anything new? Did you do something for the first time? But I told you the third question would kind of rotate from week to week. And the third question, if you'll notice in there today, says, this week, I want you to go on a miracle hunt. I want you to look for the grace moments in your life. Remember. Remember those times when God has moved in your life and blessed you in ways you could never have imagined. For when you remember the God, the unseen creator of the universe, wants to be involved in life and bless your life, it changes what lies within. Third, you and I need to remember the forgiveness that Christ offers to us. That's what we're going to be talking about in a moment when we come to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, the forgiveness that is offered to you and me. You know, since Lent is a season when you and I reflect on our lives, a time of introspection, it's easy when we start to come and get honest with ourselves before God to feel guilty because of poor decisions we've made, mistakes we've made. We sometimes think God is pointing His finger at us. The truth of the matter is, God's holding our hand. We come before God and we're afraid that He is going to be angry and judgmental at us because of what we have done and point His finger just like our parents probably did. But God isn't pointing His finger. He's wanting to hold your hand. On the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus had His disciples there, He knew they were about to desert Him. They would betray Him. They were about to fail. And before it all happened... That's when he says, when you drink this cup, remember it is my blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was preparing, creating the moment to remember to offer forgiveness before they even felt they needed it. You and I come in Lent not to have God point his finger at us, to hold our hand. It's fascinating in our country, we created our Constitution, and then we gave us our first Bill of Rights, our first Ten Amendments, and then the Fifth Amendment is about double jeopardy. It says that nobody can be tried for a crime twice. If you're um, committed, if you're uh, told you were innocent or you're told you're guilty, it's done. You cannot be tried for a crime twice. Because we didn't want people being tried for that crime over and punished this time and now punished another time and punished another. Nope, that's double jeopardy one time. But isn't it fascinating that that's the very thing you and I do to ourselves? 
we come before God and we know we've made a mistake. And so we beat ourselves up and we feel guilty and we ask for forgiveness. And then we come back and we beat ourselves up and we feel bad about what we've done and we feel guilty. And we are the ones who seem to try ourselves over and over and over again. The message of Lent is God has offered us His forgiveness. Forgive yourself. Because if you and I can experience the gift of forgiveness, then it changes our relationship with that unseen creator, the maker of us all. The thing I asked you last week was create a little space. Create a little time each day in the season of Lent where you grow still and it is quiet. For if you grow still and you begin to experience the forgiveness of God, if you see how God has moved in your life, expressing His love. If you remember how God has called you to love and to love all as He has loved you and died for you, I tell you it's going to change what lies within. The presence of Almighty God will come. In silence, create a little space. You've heard me talk about Gene Cernan. Gene Cernan was the last man to walk on the moon. He was the commander of Apollo 17. Took off on December the 7th, 1972. He flew all the way to the moon, a quarter of a million miles. They landed within 200 yards of the spot they had chosen on earth several years before. That's amazing. It was he and Jack Swihart who flew their little lunar lander down. They called it Snoopy. Landed almost exactly on the spot. And now they had a lunar rover. This was the first time they, they pulled this little lunar rover off the side of their uh, lunar lander. And it had um, solar shields. And now they were riding a dune buggy across the moon. They were on the surface of the moon for three days. Longer than anybody before. But they knew they would be the last to be there for a good while. Since 1972, nobody has gone back. And so it was, they had so many experiments to do. It was nonstop, all that needed to happen, and they were in such a hurry, and now it was all coming to an end. Several years ago, I was up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, for the fly-in, the big airplane show. Gene Cernan was there to talk. I heard him talk about this moment. He was looking at us, and he said, I finally stopped and just grew still. No more experiments running around. I knew that I'd be the last person to be there for a while. And I stood there, and what suddenly hit me was the silence. No chirping birds, no dogs barking, no wind blowing. The only thing I heard was my breathing, and so I held my breath, and all I heard was silence. He said, I started looking at the dark vastness of space, and this little beautiful blue ball in the blackness you could hold up your thumb and your thumbnail would blot it out. And I thought of all those people on earth, all the people I loved. And I wondered, what keeps it from flying off into outer space? How did we get there? One little place. And he said, I got to tell you, as I stood there, 
in silence. I, I wish I could say it in some other way, he said, but all I can tell you is I felt the presence of God. As I stood there in the desolate landscape of the moon, looking into outer space, I felt the presence of my Maker come. To experience the presence of your Maker, the one who has created us all, grow still. Remember, it will change what lies within. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.